Uh, turn to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be um, thinking about and studying how it is and, and what it means that there are two different Israels who know God. There are two Israels who know God. And Paul's going to teach some of the New Testament's most challenging things here in, uh, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. As you recall, in Romans uh, chapter 8, the teaching of the apostle is that uh, Christians would, would understand what God's favor for them means, how strong God's favor is for the believer, for those who are in Christ. Remember, 8, eight began saying there is no condemnation for those who are Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans chapter 9 begins, as you recall, two, two weeks ago we were uh, studying how the people of Israel are very, very dear to Paul. He really um, uh, has a strong affection for them. They are his people. And um, he has a real uh, sadness and, and yearning for the Israelites. And, and I, I don't know if you know why or if you followed the argument well of why he begins chapter 9 with this kind of lament. But look at 9.1, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness on the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And do you know why he's feeling so much grief? Do you understand what it is he's trying to uh, teach us here? Why does he feel so much grief and sadness? Um, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Just note that. He says they are Israelites. And we're going to read in a minute. They are not all Israel who are Israel. This is a really quite a remarkable passage here. He says they are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, giving of the law, service of God. The service of God is uh, kind of how, how temple life and tabernacle life Works. That's what the service of God is. How, how is it you're supposed to worship the Lord? Who, who brings your offerings and sacrifices to God? What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? To whom pertain also the promises? Of whom are the fathers? Who are the three main fathers of the Old Testament? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. They're the they're the ones that Israel is thinking about, talking about, when we speak about the fathers. And he finally says, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. The Messiah came, the anointed one came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. So it's such a great statement of the deity of the Lord Jesus there in that verse 5. The eternally blessed God, Jesus. Well, Christ preaches, Christ preached something similar to what we read in verse 6. 
As Paul goes on, he says, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So there is a people of Israel who is not Israel, and this is a little bit of a mystery. Going to uh, John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus preaches something quite similar to this. I believe I read this to you a couple weeks ago. Don't become uh, uh, irritated or bored with repeatedly reading certain passages. It's so helpful for us to understand these things. Romans 8.37 I'm sorry, John 8:37. the Lord Jesus is preaching in the book of John, in chapter 8. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, speaking to a people who rightly see Abraham to be there. I don't know how many greats we go in front of it, but great, 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 great grandfather, right? He's, he's, he's theirs. There he is. They're a family. The Lord Jesus says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. Where does the word work? Now this is one of the subjects of what we're about to study right now. The Lord Jesus' charge to these men who want to kill them, his charge to them is, my word has no place in you. My word doesn't fit in you. It's not at work in you. My word isn't being its word in you, is what he's telling them. My word has no place in you. Remember, the passage that we're reading in Romans says it's not that the word of God has had no effect. What is the effect of the word of God on these people that want to kill Jesus? Think about that. This is what we're beginning to understand is there's something not happening in them and something happening in them that the Lord Jesus says, this is not the result of my word at work in you. Okay. Lord Jesus says in verse 38, John 8, 38, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with, what's he say? Your Father. They're all descendants of Abraham, and they have two fathers. How is, how is uh, Paul and how is the Lord Jesus going to justify all this? How does all this come together? Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, now here's kind of where it crosses back over in the other lane again. If you were Abraham's children, what? You would do the works of Abraham. And, and what isn't written here, but this is what we could imply is written here. My word was at work in Abraham. My word was at work in him. My word produced the, the life and the works of Abraham. And if my word was in you and you were truly Abraham's children, my word would find its place in you and you would be like Abraham. Difference is where where is the word and what is the word producing? What is the word doing? We're we're just kind of looking at this in a snapshot way right now, you know, just a big overview. This is a, a picture of the conflict here. Paul speaks to a people who are related to Abraham, they're descendant to, from Abraham, and he wants their salvation. Paul longs for the salvation of these people. And this gospel that Paul has been explaining, we could very, very honestly call the book of Romans. The Gospel of Paul. Okay, 
We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul. <laughs> the Gospel of Paul. He's, he's explaining to us how the Gospel works. It's not a different Gospel. He's just explaining it at a place a tiny bit further down the road in history than, than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's giving us some detail that the Gospel writers weren't able to give us. He's concerned for their salvation. The Gospel says that the Israelites' confidence in their heritage by Abraham... That is why a Jew believes God loves him and likes it. He's related to Abraham. He's a child of Abraham. They believe that since they are descendants of Abraham, since they are sons of the circumcision, they are the ones who um, practice the law, this is why they know God loves them and God is for them. This is how they count their place in God's economy of salvation and unsalvation. But this actually disqualifies them from salvation. The way they're thinking about why God owes them salvation is why they're disqualified from salvation. They don't understand the right details of God's word to properly hope in salvation. One of the things that is amazing to me, well, I'm not going to go down that road. I will in a minute. Did God promise blessing to Abraham and his descendants? He did. And you know he did. You know that in itself is not an error, right? That's actually truth. So we, we read this at 6. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. That's kind of a negative way of saying God's word has taken effect. So some are thinking, well, God's promise... If, if we're to believe your gospel, Paul, then God's promises are not really promises. Because if they were, then you would be saying all the Jews are saved. All of Abraham's descendants are saved, but you're saying most of them aren't. So Paul says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has taken no effect. Or in other words, don't worry. God's word has been perfectly effective. And there are two Israels. That's the second part of his statement. He doesn't say it exactly the way I said it. He says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, they're, they're two Israels. We're going to dig into this. The word of God. He says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. How did Israel think about Abraham's grandchild, great-grandchild, great-great-grandchild. Think about how Abraham's immediate descendants thought about what the word of God had said. What did they remember it said? What did they know it said? How did they hear it? 9-6. 9-6 an argument mainly to the Jews. 9-6 is mainly speaking to the descendants of Abraham. 9-6 says it's not that the word of God hasn't taken effect. Who's, who's making the accusation that the word of God didn't take effect, according to Paul's gospel? The Jews listening to Paul's gospel. The Jews are hearing all of what Paul has said, and they're like, you're basically saying that God's promise was no good. Paul saying, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It has been effective. The Jews and Paul are having kind of a, a one-sided argument. Paul is trying to make sure that this is perfectly understood to the Jews. So, do the Jews believe in God? 
Do the descendants of Abraham believe in God? Do they believe in the law given by Moses? Do they believe God brought the, 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 the Jews through the Red Sea? Do they believe that they should honor God by circumcision? That all of this stuff, every single one of these things they believe and they know. They know they are to prioritize God. They know they are to prioritize His Word. And most Israel believes that God loves them and favors them on the basis of what? What do they believe? Based on the promises made to Abraham and his descendants? Is that, is that the focus of their thinking and their hope? teaches that it is Christ alone who can put the sinner at peace with God. Paul teaches that the righteousness of Christ alone can provide for the sinner's justification. That's a kind of a theological word for your righteousness, right? How, how will you show up before God on the day you die and tell God, I possess the righteousness that is required for eternal life? On what grounds can you claim that to the Lord? The gospel says it's only by faith in Christ. It's by Christ's righteousness, not by yours, right? One Israel has believed God for righteousness. In Christ, and one Israel has not. There is an Israel who has believed according truthfully to the promises, and there is an Israel who has not understood and has not apprehended the promises. If you look at Romans 5 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. What's the opposite of justification? Can you think of a word that's the opposite of justification? What would that be? Condemnation? Got any others? Guiltification? (laughs) Sinification? (laughs) Right? He says, by one man's offense, judgment came to all men. By one man's offense, all men were unjustified. Could we say it like that? One man did that. This is Paul's gospel. Resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Where does justification come from? Christ. The merit of Christ. The perfection and the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel according to Paul. 
So when you show up before God, when the when the Jew, remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man is a very, very virtuous man in the Jewish culture. And when he dies and ends up in Hades, he's surprised. He's surprised to see his old friend over there in Abraham's bosom is what it's called on that other half of the of the invisible world there. He thought he possessed the righteousness required for eternal life. And he thought, surely, Lazarus did not. And, 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 and when he wakes up in hell, he's shocked to find that he's disqualified from heaven. And that Lazarus woke up in eternal glory. Well, this passage in Romans 5 says, By one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, many were guiltified, many were made unrighteous. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. God is not for anyone who comes to him out of Christ. He is not for anyone unless they come to him through Christ. And Israel does not believe this gospel. Israel does not comprehend this gospel. The majority of the descendants of Abraham do not understand this. Christ is the door to the kingdom, you remember in this parable, right? How do most people try to go into the kingdom? Through the door? Over the wall. In the righteousness of Christ? Or with what clothes do most people? They go over the wall wearing what? Their own clothes. They don't go over the wall wearing the clothes of Christ's righteousness. They come in dressed with their own coveralls. Their own wedding clothes. There are two Israels. There's two Israels. Look quickly at Romans 10, 1 and 2. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. Listen to this carefully. This is just, this is kind of astonishing. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. The zeal for God and no knowledge. It's pretty stunning to me. These descendants of Abraham have believed for generations that God is for them. They believe God must save them because he's promised it to the patriarchs. He's promised it to David. Doesn't God love Israel because of Abraham and David? And Isaac, doesn't God love them? Won't he save them on the, on the virtue of that love that he has for them? This is, the, this is the perspective of the Jew, of the Hebrew, who's contemplating Paul's gospel. 
The master teacher here, Paul, is, is a, a phenomenal teacher. One of the reasons I say that is, is, is Paul's arguments to convince you and I about the points he's making, the logic he is, is bringing on to you so that you could have a deeper understanding of what the gospel is and how it works. His lines of argument are so many pages long and so many thoughts deep that all of us struggle to follow Paul's arguments for more than about three minutes. Once you've read four or five sentences of his arguments, you're like, I, I don't even remember what he's talking about anymore. But we really need to work to, to try to follow his logic and how he is persuading us. Some will think that God's word has not been true if Paul's gospel is true. And, and this is the problem that Paul is arguing about here. Many who are assessing the gospel know the history of the Jews and Abraham and the patriarchs and the law, Moses. They, they know that. And they're listening to what Paul is preaching and they don't fit together. And so this question that we just read, it's not as though God's word did not take effect. That's a challenge to their unbelief. He's telling them, look, God said what he intended to do, and he has done what he intended to do, and he still is. He is perfectly keeping his word. Meaning, it's not the gospel that's messed up here. It's you and your understanding of the gospel that's messed up here. You guys have not properly understood what's being explained to you. Paul, in his effort to expose them to their unbelief, begins with this idea. Number one, it's not that the word has not been in effect. Not all are Israel who say or who are Israel. Not all are Israel who say they are Israel. This is the first part of how he's going to begin to help the Jewish person in particular. And then if you know your Bibles well, you also are going to be helped in studying how it is that he explains what does this to Israel's thing really mean? And how is it that God has actually been keeping his word and is currently keeping his word? How is this so? The beginning of the argument says God's word hasn't taken no effect. Isn't that a weird way to say that sentence? He, he could have said instead, God's word has been very effective. But he says it this other way. I don't know why, but that, that's just the way he, he does it there. It has been effective. And now listen carefully, because this is one of the important premises for you and I to understand as, as you and I study the gospel. None of you knows the gospel the way you ought to know the gospel. I don't. I've been studying it for years. I've been working on Romans for years, trying to understand things like this, and I, I slowly make progress. But listen, listen to this statement. It says, the truthfully believed word is the profoundest quality of true Israel that there is. 
true Israel has truthfully and rightly perceived and believed the word of God. And therefore the word has been perfectly effective in true Israel. The truthfully understood and believed word is the most profound quality of true Israel. And I think you will see that more as we work just through a couple of lines here. We're not going to go far into chapter 9 this morning. Why are there two Israels? I see here in Romans chapter 9 a battle for orthodoxy. Orthodoxy has to do with truth, true doctrine, correct teaching. That's what orthodoxy is. When somebody says you're an orthodox, that's saying you're not uh, an accurate or a truthful Christian. An unorthodox Christian is a Christian who is importing bizarre things and, and leaving out things that are necessary. That's unorthodox. Orthodox has the right stuff and rejects the right stuff. That's what orthodox is. You want to be orthodox. If you're orthodox, you, you know the truths of our faith and you reject the false things that are constantly trying to come into the faith. There are two Israels and there are two churches. Now, this is where this particular lesson gets really deep because we know that Israel is a picture of the church. We know that the nation of Israel and its existence is a picture or it's a type of the church. And when Paul is beginning to explain the fact that there are two Israels, we can pretty immediately recognize that there are two churches. So let's look at the reality of these two Israels. And then we'll work on trying to discern where those who are saved are different from those who are lost. What's the difference between the, the saved Israel and the lost Israel? The true Israel is being comforted and encouraged in Romans chapter 8. The true Israel has heard the words and, and understands the teaching of chapter 8 that if God is for you, nothing and nobody can be against you. And he keeps you to the end. There is a true Israel. And there is a false Israel who has misunderstood God's words. And we're going to look at a couple of details of that so that when we're done here in a few minutes, you're going to be going, okay, I totally get it. I understand where there was a, a fork in the road. The promised blessing to Abraham has a fancy word. What do we call the promise to Abraham? Can you remember what that word is? The Abrahamic covenant. I heard covenant from two or three people over here. We got covenant or two over here. It's a covenant. There's a covenant promise. Three different places. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. As the covenant is first spoken to Abraham, it's a little bit like a bush. It starts out about yay big, and it gets a little bit bigger, and it gets a little bit bigger. There's a covenant given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's not a different covenant. It's, it's the covenant expanding and being given more detail at David. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 15, 1 to 6 and 18 is another um, Abrahamic covenant in a slightly enlarged version. Genesis 15, a lot of that is speaking about it. And then finally, Genesis 17, 9 to 14, 
Let's look at just the one at uh, Genesis 17 real quick. Genesis 17. So each of those places, we would, we, you could turn there and read those lines and, and get an idea of what's being discussed in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17 is actually where the sign of the covenant is given. You remember what the sign is under the old covenant? You remember what the sign is? Circumcision. This is where circumcision becomes part of the tradition of the people of Abraham. So let's just read uh, 9 to 14. Genesis chapter 17 from verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You and I have a sign of the covenant in the, in the new covenant age. Do you, you remember what it is? What is our sign of the covenant? It's baptism. We were baptized. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money, must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And then verse 18 says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Here at this point, I'm pretty sure Ishmael is, is 12 or 13 years old already. And who is Ishmael's mother? Hagar. Hagar is the mother of, of Ishmael. So this this particular section we just read is, is going to really be helpful to us as we keep reading through what is in front of us in Romans chapter 9. So remember that this spot here about Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael are here in Genesis 17. We will be referring back to it. The covenant ascribes favor and blessing to Abraham and his descendants. What's Abraham's son's name? And what does he get renamed? He gets given a new name? Israel. I mean, how can you be any more Israelite than the son of Abraham? That's why they're called Israelites. Jacob, who is renamed Israel. So Israel is the group of people. It is the clan. That's one of the words we read. It is the tribes who have descended from Abraham. Abraham has Ishmael, has Isaac, and then 
there are some other children born to Isaac. What were their names? Can you remember those names? Esau and Esau and you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's Jacob. Jacob is born to them. Jacob is the one who's renamed Israel, not Isaac, which I mistakenly said a moment ago. So the people of Israel, who is their grandfather? Well, it's, it's, it's Isaac, it's Jacob, it's Abraham. Are, are they Israel? They are. They're, they're not some other nation, are they? They are the people of Abraham. When it says hi, it means something froze. It, it's not being friendly to you. It, it means something's got to thaw out for a minute or two. Yeah, it's cold out there. Israel has the exodus, right? That's that's theirs. They, they share that in common. They have Abraham, they have the circumcision, they have the exodus, right? They have David's promise. David is promised from God directly that a son will sit on his throne forever. This is the nation of Israel, isn't it? This is a, a people that, in, in, in my mind, in my heart, I, I esteem highly the people of Israel. They are a great people to me. They are a, a remarkable nation to me. When I have read about and I've watched a movie or two about um, the, the Jews returned to Israel in the 40s and, and given statehood. That's one of the great stories of, of modern history, and I think it's a great story. I love that story. How they've been persevering through, through, through time. This is Israel. Let's see if I can... Find the next page properly. Everything's in totally crazy order here this morning, so give me a moment here. God's offer of forgiveness and eternal life is offered on the basis and the grounds of lineage or of something else. Is the gospel offer offered to Abraham's descendants or the descendants of Moses or to those who have been faithful to keep the terms of the law? Is that how the gospel of salvation has been preached. Well, it's not. 
It's, it's never been offered on those terms. Paul's message says no works of the law, no works of the law, will be the reason that a man is declared just in Romans chapter 3. By works of the law, nobody will be declared righteous. Romans 3.28, we conclude a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You guys all know that. It's almost, it's almost boring. If it wasn't so amazingly unlikely. Can you imagine that you've been credited with the righteousness of Christ by faith? Even though you've been a jerk this week. Even though you have had your normal, manly, womanly attitudes, temptations. All of these Sinful inclinations in us are declared righteous by faith in Christ. But indeed, Abraham is the father of national Israel. And Abraham is the father of true Israel as well. So look at Romans uh, 4.11. Romans 4.11. Obviously, we've already been there. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. You see that Abraham is going to be the father of those who are not circumcised, even though he is the one who has come circumcision. It's come through him. That's where circumcision is from. It's, it's what he did because he believed the promise. But look carefully again at what it said. The sign of circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. There was something real in the person of Abraham before circumcision, which we, we could make an argument and say that circumcision is the first work of faith in the Bible. I mean, you could probably make other similar arguments, but let's just for argument's sake say that that is the first work of faith. What preceded it? What preceded circumcision? The faith that he had while still uncircumcised. What is faith? What was Abraham's faith? I'm, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy. And, and well, He believed the words that God had spoken to him. The word of God had already begun to work in his heart and in his mind, and he believed it. That happened before he was circumcised. Faith in God's words means that the word of God was effective. God's word of promise was at work and working in Abraham before he ever was circumcised. His righteousness and his salvation, Abraham's righteousness and Abraham's salvation, it's steam. Okay. It's defrosting. That's what it's doing right now. 
His righteousness and his salvation is a type. It's a way for you and I to understand how does God credit righteousness to somebody? Why does he say you are righteous? Abraham is a, a way for you and I to understand how that happened. How does God make that declaration? It was faith in Abraham's heart and mind rested in God and in the word that God had spoken to him. And he's declared righteous. The gospel, according to Paul, teaches us that Abraham had a certain disposition toward God and his words. Abraham behaved. Abraham thought. Abraham felt a certain way toward God and toward his words. He was a certain kind of a man. He, had, he possessed a certain character and a certain nature. His belief made him who he was and what he did. His belief formed his life. I think I have an illustration that helps us understand this a little bit. Our grandparents, I think all of you would say this, our grandparents were a lot more like real Americans than the kids who graduated from high school last year. Right? Now, let's flesh this out just a tiny bit. Remember, I'm telling you, what is Abraham like in terms of a person of faith in God's word? What does that mean? Think about what an American was a hundred years ago. Trusting their success to hard work, to God's providence. The men and women of our country a hundred years ago, they would pray for rain. They, they, they would pray that it wouldn't rain at the wrong time of year. They would pray for fruitful crops or healthy animals or what have you, right? The providence of God for the men and women of America 100 years ago was built into the fiber of an American. They were honest people. They were God-fearing people. They were charitable people. Why? Because they... In, from, from the inside of them, they valued those principles. They believed those things were right, and so they did them in that way. They were loyal to constitutional principles. They believed certain things about the framers of our country and the rules and principles they laid down for us, and they, they believed God's Ten Commandments weren't just guidelines. They, they knew that they were true. They knew that they were right. There was a certain character of a person in America a hundred years ago. Are their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren Americans? Well, in one sense they are, aren't they? In one sense, they are Americans. In another sense, they are not Americans. So this is not, not a perfect analogy, but I think it kind of helps you get a little bit better grip on what does it mean to be an Abraham and not an Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham's knowledge of God was formed by his Knowledge and understanding of the words that God spoke to him. And Abraham feared God, believed God, lived according to what God revealed to him. The children 
The grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of the men and women of America of 100 years ago were born Americans. Very few of them are Americans. It's a pretty shocking contrast. They have a U.S. passport. Maybe. Maybe most of them are too lazy to even apply for one. They, 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 they don't know what the purpose would be in, in having one. They don't have that inner Americanness, do they? They don't. They, they don't have it in them for the most part. They don't even know why America was great or what was great about it. They actually have been taught and they believe now that it's, it's scorn-worthy. In our generation, we have failed to teach and instill the principles of, of what it means to our children or, or to our grandchildren so that the children of these generations, they're, they're not the Americans of yesterday. Israel is similar. This is how there are two Israels. This is why there are two Israels. It's on a much more massive Scale. Israel had the stewardship of God's prophecies and prophets. Israel's knowledge of God wasn't secondhand. Israel's prophets were the prophets of the planet Earth. God speaking to the world came by the prophets of Israel. They also had the advantage of God's historic witness. One example of what I mean by that, and you think about this, Israel is the people who crossed the Red Sea when God opened it for them through Moses and they left their slavery in Egypt. That was Israel's. That is in their people's history. Time and history itself Time and history itself is a witness of Israel's favor and of how God had been with them, walked with them, guided them. But they left God. They left his word. They they walked away from it. And instead, in, in a way, all they ever did was live off of Abraham's reputation. They knew Abraham's greatness, but they didn't know Abraham's faith. Back in Romans Chapter 4 and verse 13. Look at this. This is a careful distinction that has been made by Paul for us. Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. Remember, 4.11 reminds us that Abraham's faith preceded the sign of his faith. Abraham believed and the sign followed. Romans 4.13 says, The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. That's not how the promise was articulated. And here's where you and I begin to understand where did Israel lead the tracks? Where did they begin to not understand what their relationship to God was really like? The promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise was through the righteousness of faith. Israel made a wrong turn at this crossroad. And that's why Paul says this, what he says in 4.13. It was not to come by through the law. It was to come by faith. Israel knew it. Israel heard it. 
What did that word affect in them? Nothing. They, they, they came to the crossroads of, there are two things at stake right there, the law and the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith is a fork in the road. They went down the righteousness of the law. They did not go down the righteousness of faith. So this becomes the focus of their hope and not realizing, not even understanding that they do not possess, they did not have what Abraham had. They were not what Abraham was. They were not Abraham's children. What are Abraham's children really like? What's the difference between Abraham's children and false Israel's children? What's the difference? Faith in God by his word spoken to them. Righteousness by faith, not righteousness by the law. This is what makes someone a true heir of Abraham and a true Israelite. Remember, 4.11 said Abraham is the father. Who is he the father of in Romans 4.11? Those who have faith, even without circumcision. The issue of Israel, who is Israel, who is not Israel, is so pertinent to you and I. Because as many Jews do not know God, doesn't accept them. The Jews believe he favors them above all, but God does not accept them. Israel in the flesh believes they are favored by him. He does not accept them. And, and the stunning thing is here is they, they're not worshipers of a false god, are they? They're not idolaters. They don't, they don't worship some Middle Eastern religion. They have all the right forms, all the right words. This is also portrayed in Christ's preaching in the New Testament in the false church and in the true church. And as you guys know, many are said to come to Christ at the end of the age and in Matthew 7 and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty deeds in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You see how there is a false church and a true church at the end of the age? It's nearly... Identical to what Israel is contemplating in the Gospel of Romans. How does this explanation that we're reading about here in Romans chapter 9, how does this continue as Paul guides Israel as he goes on to argue against their false understanding? What is the Israel of God's word? He says they are not unanimously counted God's children in the line of Abraham. Verse 6. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to read a couple verses here. The righteousness of faith speaks this way. I'm sorry, I went to 10. I apologize. 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. 
for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But, now here's where we're going to really start getting into the meat of this thing. In Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, quote, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So think about Abraham's progress of understanding, and I think this should be encouraging to all of us. Abraham himself went from, from A to B in his understanding of what this promise meant and how it worked. So listen carefully while we work for this for just a couple minutes. He was the one who hears the words of God's promise directly that we read in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, right? We read these words of this promise. Abraham actually had who first? Who is his first son? Ishmael. He has a son, Ishmael. He has two sons. And then when he asked God, please bless Ishmael, what does God tell him? He says, no, Abraham. Why? Why not Ishmael? That's exactly it. What was the word? Listen carefully and make a couple notes for yourself and think about this later today. There was a word spoken to Abraham. He says, what about Ishmael? As if he and his wife's slave's solution would be an acceptable solution to God. God, we've already got this covered. We've solved this. Remember how verse 6 started. It is not as though the word of God was without effect. Now, if the word of God had been of no effect, then Hagar's child would have been the child. But what did God's word say? Sarah will have a son at this time next year. Did she? Did she? Was God's word effective? Mighty, perfectly effective. Think deeply on how Abraham had himself had to move from Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, and then finally Isaac. Think about that. In Genesis chapter 2, this second son is called his only son. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is called Abraham's only son. Why? Because he is the only son of the promise. Abraham had two sons. He had one promised son who is the only begotten Son, in Genesis chapter 22 too, you can look it up later. He is the son who was born according to the promise. What is the promise? It's God's words. The words of God, the effective words are an articulate promise or a precise promise. You've got to get this. This is why Israel missed it. They were lazy in their reading and thinking on the word. They didn't look at it carefully. They didn't believe it 
carefully. Only one child came according to the promise. A child that will inherit God's blessing is born to Abraham according to the promise. Another child was born. Whose idea was child number one? Think about this carefully. Whose idea was child number one? Sarah, Abraham, Hagar. They all conspired together. Sarah suggests it. Abraham says, okay, let's go along with it. Whose idea was it? It was Abraham and Sarah's. Whose idea was a son in the first place? God's. God is the one who promised a son. Who came up with the idea of how to get the son? Man. Men schemed a way to solve God's problem. Men solved God's problem. Men solved God's promise. Whose plan was it to bless Abraham and the nations? God. In the covenant given to Abraham, God covenants. God speaks words. God promises to Abraham. Who literally authors, listen to this carefully and think about this, who authors the existence of Isaac? God. Before Isaac is born, he is promised. Before Isaac is born, the promise to the nations, the blessing to Abraham and the rest of the nations of the world is spoken and promised. This is the promise. What about Ishmael? What do we know about Ishmael? This is a really fascinating rabbit trail. Abraham and Sarah, helping God to fulfill his promises, would Ishmael call himself Abraham's blessed son? Likely he would. Likely he would say, yeah, God promised a son. God has promised blessing to Abraham and his offspring. Ishmael would, would more likely than not see himself as being in his great line of the promised people of God. Would he potentially claim Abraham for his own rights to God blessing? Likely. But if we think about him as man's attempt to make the answer to the promise, Ishmael is a type. He's an example of man's attempt to fulfill God's promise. I see multiple examples of what Ishmael might be, but one of the big ones is I see in Ishmael that he is a type of the seeker church Christian. Think about this for a second. Seeker church Christian. The seeker thinks to himself, the seeker pastor thinks to himself, the seeker church thinks to themselves, how can we grow this church? How can we increase the church in the land? How can we multiply the children of God in the world? How do we do it? They wonder. Well, one of the things that they do is they're a tiny bit less forthright about the gospel. They don't say all of the truths about the gospel because it's offensive. They don't want to say all the words of the gospel. They don't want to offend people with the gospel, so they hide details of the gospel. 
take away what they consider maybe to be the boring parts of church life, the hard parts of Christianity, hide those things, put them away. They, they instead can bring out the fun stuff, the entertaining stuff. This is how we can multiply the kingdom. This is how we will make the church huge. Let's not talk about divisive doctrines. Let's not get too into the teachings of the church because people won't want to come and hear that. You see how men begin to plot and scheme and come up with an idea to please God and to honor God with the increasing of the children. Make church fun. Fill the church with children for God's glory. Does God want big congregations who do not fear and love him? Does God want big congregations who are offended at his word? Does God want us to fill buildings with people who do not possess the belief that affects that the way they think and they live? Don't help God like that. Don't help him like that. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need our solutions to grow the church like Abraham and Sarah did with Ishmael. He doesn't need our help. He can grow his own church. As a matter of fact, he promised that he would. The Lord Jesus said to Peter, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is building his church by the preaching and the proclaiming of his word, the true word, the full gospel of his word. Offensive, hard, narrow. But God is the one who makes the promise and keeps his promise. There is a people who's called true Israel. True Israel is a people who's been created and is in the process of being molded by his word. You see, when he says it's not that the word has been of no effect, what he is saying is the word of God is mighty and effective. It does not fail to be effective. Do you believe that? Do you believe that his word is the effective thing? Or are you and, and your, your closest Christian friends going to scheme like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and go, okay, what's... Okay, I'm too old to have kids now. You know, poor Sarah, you can't blame her for thinking that at 90 years old and Abraham being 100. Nobody's going to have a kid at that age. You ready to have a kid, John? Randy? Yeah. Patty? You ready? I mean, it's just, number one, none of you has the energy for it. Number two, none of us has the equipment for it. So, I mean, seriously, think of Abraham and Sarah. Like, well, it just can't happen. Do you understand the power and the effectiveness of the Word of God? Do you understand that? Do you begin to appreciate how Israel left the track? They left the track. They went after God by the law, not by faith. The Word of God is the thing that precedes the fruitfulness of His promises. The Word of God is effective for what he said it would be effective for. The master builder of the church who says, I will build my church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the preacher of the church building operation that 
every Christian should be devoted to and committed to. We, we believe in and we hope in the growth of the church for God's glory. But it is Christ who builds a structure with living stones, he says in the book of, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, I don't have the reference. He builds a structure of living stones for what? For a dwelling place of God. Christians are being fitted together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God's Spirit lives in the church. He serves in the church as Christians. Listen to his word. Submit to his word. Are corrected by his word. Polished by his word. Beautified by his word. Conformed into the image of of Christ by his word. His word is the effective thing that makes his church according to his glorious purposes. It's his word that is powerful and effective. Well, the word of the promise to Sarah was for her son next week. We're going to pick up at verse 10. There is another son born to another descendant of Abraham. Rebecca has twins. And we're going to study this idea of sons. This is such an amazing thing. Sons born to infertile women. Do you realize that? Sarah was 90 something and no children. Why? She's a barren woman. Oh, sing for joy, barren woman. God will give you children. Isn't it a glorious thing? Sarah, barren. You know, Rebecca had her husband praying for her because she couldn't give birth to a child. She couldn't have children. And her husband was praying for her. And the word comes to them that she will have a child. Barren women giving birth to children is supposed to be a demonstration of God's power and his effective word. 